Welcome to this BGSM podcast. My name is Stefan Griffin. I'm a junior doctor in central London and a member of the BGSM editorial team. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Dr. Seth O'Neill. And those of you on Twitter will know Seth. He's a physiotherapy lecturer at the University of Leicester and he has a special interest in calf and Achilles injuries, having completed his PhD on Achilles tendinopathy. So, so let's, let's go straight into sort of Achilles tendinopathy and really sort of mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, which um, sort of you focus a lot of your PhD work on. And yeah. I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of our readers will be sort of probably up to date um, with some of the research, but why don't we just try and cover some sort of global themes? Um, let's start with some of the risk factors for Achilles tendinopathies. Um, what sort of, um, is it a demographic? Is it sort of, um, sort of, is it, genetic is it environmental things um or tell us just tell us a little bit about the risk factors for okay it, it's probably a perfect storm of uh, a variety of factors you've just mentioned actually so we know for achilles particularly men seem to be at a higher risk there's more men that um certainly um complain or, or attend for sessions with achilles mid-portion disorders um once upon a time we might put that down to more men being active in running based sports but I think nowadays that's um, changed and I think it's much more equal um, there's also different age groups so we see a um, a big boom in Achilles problems for uh, men in their 40s and then we see another spike in the 60s and, and later where we've got uh, primarily very um, big degenerative changes and people start to get problems with walking um, whereas the 40 year old category is mostly um, your weekend warrior types the the active guys that fit in triathlon training and stuff around work and start to, to break as a consequence so the risk factors um, like I said are age um, sex or gender I should say um, and then some internal risk factors linked to how your tendon repairs or remodels so things like diabetes um, or adiposity which are known to create low-level inflammatory um, reactions within the body that seem to increase your risk of developing musculoskeletal disorders. Um, if you're on um, systemic steroids, um, that can also influence your ability for the body to remodel. But equally, you're often on those steroids because you've got an inflammatory um, arthropathy of some disorder and that seems to um, be a risk factor for developing tendon disorders as well so they're your sort of typical remodeling type components um, and then most risk factors really probably relate to the increased stress on the tendon and um, that obviously influences the wear on the tendon, the ability for homeostasis to be maintained. So factors like training load are, are one of the big things. Um, and they'll influence that in an active athletic person who develops a tendinopathy. Um, but in a, a sedentary person who develops tendinopathy, it's probably more about the recovery, the, the repair rates within the tendons that's the problem. Um, but their tendons will be less resilient in the first instance because they do less activity. And tendons, living tissue, just like muscles, it, it wastes if we don't use it. Um, and if we use it in an appropriate manner, we can make it more robust and resilient. So it's this sort of process of an active person requires more resilience and better capacity within the tendon. An inactive person requires less, but that means they can trigger it off with a more mundane task. 
Um, so our focus with our risk factors, we've done some UK research, which we're hoping to get published soon, on UK runners using 1,500 respondents um, looking at risk factors. And what seems to come out of that is training load, increasing training coming up to an event, specific events, um, and then a variety of factors that may or may not link to um, plantar flexor function. So things like dorsiflexion range of movement, with both increased dorsiflexion and reduced dorsiflexion being known identified risk factors in the literature. Um, and then also um, potentially my focus has been on calf uh, weakness as a potential factor. Um, it's been identified in prospective research in army recruits um, in the past, but hasn't gained any real interest with world um, experts doing further studies on it. Um, but when we completed a Delphi study of world experts, that was one of the factors that came out as sort of a modifiable risk factor. Um, and hence my PhD sort of focusing on um, plantar flexor function and plantar flexor strength um, as a, a key component. So, yeah, I guess they really fall into two categories, the influence, the ability of the tendon to remodel or the stress on the tendon in the first place. And it's a bit of a balancing act to maintain homeostasis. Let's say you diagnose someone with a with an Achilles tendon, mid portion Achilles tendinopathy. Without going into too much, specific, what would what does your general rehab plan consist of? Are there any things that you think other people sort of don't do as well? What what are the top sort of three four things that you sort of uh, focus on? Um, so the big things for me are trying to get patients to understand the process of tendinopathy with how it occurred in the first instance because patients don't necessarily want to know just about what's wrong. They want to know why they've developed it. And I think we've always got to look at that individual of what risk factors seem to have stood out in their history. So was there an increased training load? Did they sort of, if we use Tim Gabbard's um, sort of approach of looking at acute chronic ratios, was there a spike in training load around the time that this started? And we tend to see that in our active athletic group. And if we can help them understand why it occurred, we can help them to understand why we're going to approach it in a certain way. So I think that is critical, both the, um, the understanding of the disorder, the etiology, but also um, the factors that influence that and therefore the management. So that's one of my big sort of components really of that first session. And I'm fortunate enough in private practice that I can spend an hour with patients during that first session to help give them a, a big understanding of it. Um, so yeah, education, reassurance um, that the tendon is robust enough to cope with normal activities like running. Um, and as part of that, if we've got the option, we can, if people are concerned, we can then do a, a, something like a UTC scan to look at how much of the tendon is healthy. And we've got some um, big data now suggesting that there's um, sort of thresholds that we might consider useful and satisfactory levels of collagen. And maybe below that, there may be a higher risk of injury um, like ruptures. Um, but we need some larger or much larger studies to, to look at that. So multiple thousands of patients, really. And that's what we're hoping to be doing going forwards. Um, so, yeah, so we're looking at um, imaging if and when necessary, but it's not routine for my normal management. It would be education um, about loading as well and how to get them back loading. And as part of that, we've got to reassure and de-threaten the injury and what the pain means to the person, because often patients with a tendinopathy are concerned that they're going to go on to rupture their Achilles tendon. Um, and they also have a misunderstanding that the problem um, needs to be rested in order to get better. And we need to help them overcome that because they actually 
probably need to use it more in order to get it better. Certainly they need to use it more in an appropriate way to return to sport and function. Um, rest will always settle the pain, but when they go back to activity, that will tend to trigger the problem much sooner with the activity than it did do before. Um, so yeah, my big, big components are um, yeah, reassurance, um, de-threatening the condition, starting to help them understand load management and then a progressive loading program and a big part of that for me will incorporate plantar flexor strength or plantar flexor capacity however we want to term it we'll, we'll look at endurance as well as pure um, force capacity the strength component okay that sounds really interesting i think the listeners will probably murder me if i don't in fact go into a bit more detail in terms of the exercise protocol you use and Especially okay. when you talk about plantar flexor, plantar flexor strength, what sort of loading programs would you sort of typically use? Have you got a sort of formula that you found works well for you in clinics? Yeah, I'd use something as simplistic as a heel raise from a flat surface initially if they're um, irritated by dorsiflexion. Um, but if for a typical mid-portion, we can do it over a step from day one. We'd use heel raises and we'd progress the heel raises with the number and the load that we try and put through the tendon in order to rehabilitate them to, to cope with normal tasks. Um, so initially that might be bilateral heel raises over a step and we'd try and get patients to do some with a bent knee and some with a straight knee um, so they're trying to put load through different sections of the tendon because we know that the the different sections of the tendon the deep fibers and the superficial fibers will um, actually slide in relation to each other a variety of studies have shown that. Um, Stein Bogarts uh, in um, Belgium has particularly done quite a lot of work with his PhD on that, identifying this sort of interfascicular slidings occurring. Um, so we try and rehab the calf muscles to um, strain the tendon in an appropriate manner and build that strength up. So really from four weeks or thereabouts, we'd expect to be using external loads. So that means something like a rucksack um, with some weights in. And we want patients to understand that the calf and the Achilles is robust and it copes with huge stresses and strains during normal day-to-day -day functions. Um, so around about four times body weight is the intratendon force with walking. And then around about six times body weight is the intratendon force during jogging. So we want the tendon to withstand that. And if you calculate that using sort of inverse um, dynamics, it equates to a force output through the tendon on an isometric, through the foot, I should say, on an isometric plantar flexor test of around twice body weight that will relate to forces in and around that capacity. So we would always test their plantar flexor function. We test the strength in the clinic using, uh, we use an Nintendo Wii using some software called Physiometer to just um, identify that in the clinic to give the patient a marker of where they're at now um, using healthy data from our PhD of where people should be aiming to achieve. So they've got a target um, and will progress their strength up to that level um, over a period of time. But from day one, we'd always try and use um, continued um, sports activity. Um, so this is going with Karen Silbernagel's work of continued exercise um, using a pain monitoring model. And that could be walking for the more sedentary people or the more irritated people. But for uh, somebody who's able to perform a bit better, it will be jogging. It will be taking them out for a run themselves for uh, a level that is tolerable. Um, so we'll look at the pain response, um, both during and afterwards. Um, often people encourage the, the morning after pain as a good marker. I'll tend to use the same day pain. 
pain. I don't want them to really be that sore in the morning, um, but I'll tolerate that and uh, I'll tell them we're happy with that if that's what's happening. So, um, yeah, we just need to try and help them understand that whole package and, and go from there. Brilliant. And my next question actually was in relation to measuring progression, measuring sort of um, how sort of patients are doing. And the, the things that I've got listed here are pain, uh, using sort of strength measures, um, and also then things like imaging and um, sort of just general sort of sporting activity slash function. Um, yeah. What, do you find that all of these play a role or is there something that you sometimes find will give you a sort of better objective measure of progression? Um, there's a couple of papers. Um, so Peter Malieris has done a systematic review looking at um, sort of what seems to change with rehab um, for Achilles and patella and their suggestion is it's neuromuscular that's important and um, we've previously published a paper sort of trying to come up with a hypothesis about why neuromuscular changes would be important and how that might reduce the stress on the Achilles and make recovery good so we think it's about strength so because of that and I've got that sort of um, I was going to say bias, but it's based on literature and it's the best explanation we currently have. We want to improve strength. So I would measure strength capacity as we go forwards. But for a patient, the key thing for them is function and what they're able to do. So I would use my strength measures alongside functional markers of recovery. And for function, it's not just how far can you run or how far can you walk. It's about what's your pain response after you've done that. Uh, and with Achilles problems, we know that often as the people do these activities, the, the pain can ease off. They get a warm-up effect. It feels better. Um, so we look at the aftermath, um, what they're like the, the later that day or the next day, um, as a consequence of that activity. Um, we're trying to just get them to increase their activity levels whilst keeping that um, sort of pain or discomfort at a, a tolerable level. So I, I tend to use pain and function together and then strength in isolation as my sort of critical markers. But I also look at their beliefs. Um, so the patient's sort of experience and beliefs about what's wrong and what they think the pain means as we go forwards. So we're trying to help them um, rethink the meaning of that sort of pain experience so um, they can sort of hopefully persevere with their exercises because it does seem to be about specific exercises for long periods of time so they need that perseverance in order to get good outcomes the patient's perception of what it means is very very powerful and often when i've explained what's wrong with their tendon and why it's happened patients often walk out and as they're going out the door they'll say seth you know what i feel better already i feel just good it feels nice now um and we've not done anything we've just changed their sort of thought process about what's wrong and um i think we need to change the psychosocial components much more than we've often done in the past what are the most common misconceptions mistakes you find that people um that people make when it comes to dealing with the pathology um, I'll back it up with a bit of data as well on this. So when we did the study of UK runners, we created a word cloud. Um, so, you know, like the uh, most common words that people identify, so the word cloud with it. And we looked at what patients had done with their um, rehab and what came out was ultrasound and rest. Um, and so from that, I think that's where we tend to go wrong. That's what treatment people have been given. Um, and basically they're, they're using the wrong things. They're resting a tendon and resting a muscle, which 
immediately leads to wasting of both the tendon structurally, the muscle structurally, but also the neuromuscular function of the muscle. You end up with weakness developing, um, and ultrasound is just not going to cut the mustard with it um, at all, or, or any of the passive treatment we want to throw. So a lot of hands-on um, physio techniques like frictions or specific soft tissue mobilizations is where you might get hold of the tendon and try and move it. There's no evidence that those type of techniques work or, or any of the other passive treatments, or if there is evidence, it's of limited quality and of limited benefit. And we find that a simple loading approach with a good um, biopsychosocial sort of um, holistic view of a patient gives us outcomes that beat the published data um, that exists at the moment. So I think we can do better with simple stuff than very well, rather than sort of some of the typical techniques we've learned about in the past. And I'd include injections with that. Often people are too fast to escalate care to other passive treatments like various injection therapies and that's where we go wrong um, having said that some people get the right treatment for the patient they use modified loading um, education and then a gradual um, loading program of calf strength and stuff but they've often not got a good buy-in from the patient to understand what's wrong and why they're doing this and patients then lose sort of touch with what they're doing and they start to think well I just want to run I don't care about what I'm like in the gym doing this and, and sometimes people try and get people not to run they'll do four weeks or six weeks in a gym first of calf capacity and I just think that's not equally sort of looking after a patient's health in, in the, the mental sense of it that a lot of people run for mental health and to de-stress from work and we need to include all of that even if it's a walk run combination instead um, and then the big thing that's come out recently is people getting sidetracked with uh, gluteal exercises. Um, so there's a little bit of data for the uh, mid-portion Achilles problems where gluteal function um, or timing of muscle activation seems to link with people that go on to get Achilles problems. Um, and so I've seen lots of patients that have gone through lots of gluteal rehab work having had their plantar flexor function totally neglected during that time period and it's not not helped them and then once they've started some simple calf work and and like we said with the psychosocial components because often they've been very fearful about doing heel raises um they've recovered very very well very fast so uh, i think they're the, the big things where we go wrong in elite sports it goes wrong because we try and rehab people too fast They've got injured. They've had a couple of weeks of much lower threshold activity, activity, and then we've stuck them straight back into a sporting environment once they've felt good, and tried to get them to compete at whatever that is, whether it's a game of football, rugby, or, or sort of track and field. And it's just too rapid. If you were to calculate their acute chronic ratios, um, they're massively spiked their load, and of course we're inevitably going to break down again so we need to make sure we build up over a very long period of time to allow the rest of the body to, to rehabilitate fully um but now sort of moving on to something i know you're particularly uh, passionate about and something you spoke about in barcelona and there was one tweet uh, from your talk and it was a slide and it was a, a comment you made that which i think got a lot of traction online that it was the that the soleus is not just a postural muscle it's a power muscle that we have neglected so i know Again, you've spoken sort of a, a lot about this, but just tell our listeners, so what is, how important to you is the role of the soleus in ankle slash calf function and then in sporting performance in general? 
Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, it was one of these things, I always say it, it's, um, we get taught at university, whether you're a medic or a physio or any other sort of exercise therapy based background, that soleus is a, a little puny muscle that's a postural muscle and keeps us upright. Um, and it's quite small and gastrocnemius is this wonderfully powerful muscle that does all the work and helps us jump and run and stuff. Um, well, it's blatantly wrong when you get down to the biomechanical studies that have been done on this. Soleus is actually quite big in its anatomical area. Um, it's much bigger than any other lower limb muscle when it comes to its physiological cross-sectional area. It's sort of off the scale, really. Um, and that's what allows it to generate huge locomotive forces. So for, for running... Um, the soleus will generate forces based on inverse di um, dynamic studies using sort of biomechanic modeling. And there may be some flaws with that modeling, but it generates, like we said, forces of around eight times body weight every step during steady state running. So we're not talking sprinting. Sprinting, it actually drops a little bit. It can't sort of work at that level. And when we sprint, we start to switch the, the stress in the lower limb up to the proximal region, so the hip. And that's why we see more hamstring injuries or rec fem injuries. Um, but for, for jogging-based activities, which is the biggest group that get Achilles problems or calf strains, um, it's actually the, the calf muscles that are doing the majority of the work. So soleus is, like I said, eight times body weight or thereabouts. Gastroc is around three times body weight. And this is not based on just one study. This is based on a multiple of studies. And that means that those muscles are putting huge forces through the Achilles tendon. So around about sort of six times body weight through the Achilles tendon per stride. Um, the soleus particularly generates 50% of your vertical force during running um, to keep us upright. It's, it's really important. It's just something we've totally missed. Um, and because it does all those forces, we have to then go, well, rehab needs to replicate that type of force. And we've had physios in the past using TheraBand exercises, those little elastic band stuff, um, lying people on beds, getting them to resist against TheraBand. Well, it's literally, black theraband is about 10 kilos in, in resistive force. Um, that's nothing compared to doing a heel raise when it's lifting your body weight. Well, let's get it doing things it needs to do, like your body weight, um, and amplify that by getting it to do locomotive activities where it really rehabs to be fit for purpose. Um, so, yeah, I get a bit sort of yeah, fed up with it sometimes when we need to do heavy stuff and people are arguing we should do light stuff. It's fine. It's not. It's really important. It does big, heavy work. If people wanted a few sort of exercises, because again, bringing it back to your clinical work, the exercises yeah. to really focus on really stressing the soleus uh, to getting these mid-portion acute back to well, whatever level of sports, whatever activities they want. Is there anything you find works really well in the clinic setting that patients respond well to? Yeah, so the, the heel raisers would be my simple go-to um, with or without the bent knee, um, and with or without a step, so um, over the step or on a flat floor. That's my go-to, adding in the external loads with running as part of it. And then what we need to do is add in some hopping or jumping tasks within that. And you might start with a rebounder or skipping and progress into more vigorous hopping forms, so single leg hops. Or you could progress to more typical plyometrics like counter-movement jumps and, and things. Um, but I also use um, farmer's walks where you walk around on your tiptoes for a good period of time. And I, I try and get people to do quick steps um, as like a run on the spot, but they're keeping their heel off the floor. And for a lot of calf injuries that we've been involved with rehabilitating in terms of some elite athletes and stuff, that seems to be one of the best things where they're doing this sort of fast, high impact sort of um, bounding work, but they're not allowing the, the 
um, calcaneum, the heel to touch the floor. So they're staying on the toes the whole time. Equally, I think very heavy isometric exercises done using gym apparatus can be good to develop sort of neuromuscular and sort of load changes in the, the tendon to potentially remodel the tendon down the line. Um, so when we say heavy, we're often talking two to three times body weight as a force output in those elite guys. Um, and they're isometric. So we will often do that in a bent knee position, but I don't think it necessarily matters too much about the position you load in. Um, but you've just got to get some equipment that you can do that on. So it might be things like a leg press, but they need a partner or two partners to pull them into the position and then let go so they can resist with their plantar flexors in that sort of position, work very hard for three to five seconds, and then they can be offloaded by the, the partners lifting the machine or lifting the weight off them again. So they really push that capacity to work superbly hard. Um, but jumping and hopping and the counter movement jumps and the whole variety of plyometric jumps that we can use should form part of that as well down the line and that's your later stage rehab first stage is the strength training um, and the endurance seems to just come good when you do a lot of the locomotive stuff anyway based on our endurance data we have as well um, so i guess the only thing to say is in addition to the the loading that we're using we're not focusing on um just trying to do a number of reps for our patients so whereas they do the heel raise and then the heel lower so this concentric and eccentric movement it's not just our oh, you need to do 10 reps or, or whatever number we go for we're trying to push them outside of their comfort zone so we develop a neuromuscular capacity um, because we don't think the critical thing although i've talked about strength we don't think it's strength per se we just think strength is a measure a proxy measure for the neuromuscular coordination of the calf muscles and what other people have observed so people like Jonathan Rees um, and Alex Grigg and um, Henriksen have done work on identifying tendon oscillations or tendon vibrations or force frequency vibrations and this is where the tendon sort of shakes during an eccentric contraction and of course that shape doesn't come from the tendon it comes from the muscle not coordinating the eccentric component very well and we observe that in our um, PhD, or my PhD data I should say and we've also sort of published on we think that that's the critical thing to change so we try and target that in our patients by as they do the heel raise and the heel lower we try and get them to be aware that their tendon or their muscle I should say sorry is oscillating they're vibrating they're shaking um, and it's a shake it's a fasciculation and it's because they're not able to activate the fast twitch muscle fibers in a coordinated manner during that eccentric lower so we try and get them to become aware of that shake if we can observe it and when we do our isokinetic research data it's really really obvious um, i'll try and put in a little slide just to show you for this talk as well and it's really obvious and what we're trying to do is smooth that out because we think that's um, ending up loading the tendon with mini stretch shorten cycles repetitive, repetitively per rep and we want to stop that happening so our target in the rehab of the lower is to get them to lower down and stop and that might be at 25% of the movement and then we hold it there for a second or two and we slowly lower to 50% of the movement. Um, and then what we might do is go back up to 25% and down to 75%. So this is when they're doing the heel drop, the dorsiflexion component, and they might hold it 25%, go back up to 50, go then down to sort of 100% of the movement, all the way down to a dorsiflex position, and then come back up a little bit, come all the way to the top, 
come back down to 50, come back up to 25. So there's no magic order we do it in, but it's just trying to give them a ballpark of it's not a smooth contraction because that's very easy um, neuromuscularly to do. So we're talking central changes and peripheral changes in the neural system and also in the muscle itself. We're trying to develop those pathways and develop a much better skill set for moving that muscle um, and therefore the tendon through this sort of cycle. And patients have to understand that instead of reps, we're trying to get fatigue and, and discomfort in the calf muscle normally, or the tendon if that occurs during the cycle of um, training and something around about a minute to two minutes worth of um, exercise on that tendon using that approach to improve the coordination capacity and that seems to be I think anyway it's my gut feeling at the moment that that's critical to change in terms of a person's outcome but we don't have robust data on that at the moment and watch this space on it but for the moment that's how we want to develop um, sort of neuromuscular capacity which seems to be the key thing to change for good clinical outcome at the moment. Seth, that sounds absolutely fantastic and I think that's probably good I think we've gone through everything from risk factors to, to management and sort of top level uh, management as well so thank you so much for joining us Seth and thank you all of our listeners uh, for listening to another BGSM podcast if you want to get in touch with any, with any questions for Seth at all, then you can find him on social media. And likewise, if you want to get in touch with any of us at the journal regarding new podcast guests or anything, then please don't hesitate to contact us. Have a wonderfully physically active day. Bye.